Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Richard Blissbrook here with a very, very special episode of The Authentic Networker. Today, I have the great honor of interviewing Dr. Shafali, one of the most inspiring women of our time. Dr. Shafali holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and is an expert in family dynamics, personal development, and guiding women to transcend their fears, break the legacies of pain, and find their own authentic voices. Dr. Shivali's been featured on Oprah Winfrey's platforms, Good Morning America, The Today Show, Hoda and Jenna, and many others. She's also the best-selling author of several books, including The Conscious Parent, A Radical Awakening, and The Awakened Family. Today, we're going to hear about our own radical awakening and how we can inspire your journey. Dr. Shafali, I am uh, deeply honored that you have taken the time to share with the audience here at The Authentic Networker your works, your messaging, your philosophy, your coaching resonates deeply with my tribe. And I know they're very, very anxious to hear your story. And I know you have massive intellect and, and extraordinary distinctions and what I'm going to ask you mostly about this morning in our brief time together is stories. I'd like to start with, can you tell us about what it was like for you as an intuitive child growing up in India? And how did you think you knew you just didn't fit in there? Thanks for that question. Because I was extra, I think, intuitive or sensitive or... Uh, aware as a child, I felt very suppressed by the culture early on. And my, my family actually is unbelievably liberating and wonderful. But my the culture was so oppressive to me that I got these messages constantly on how to be a good girl. And those messages felt very suppressive to me. And um, I knew I needed to run away and break free from this constant um, attention I got as a child because of the coloring of my skin or my eyes, things that are coveted in that culture, the messages of, you know, this rigid way to be that I got from this patriarchal culture. So all these ways that I was being put into a box really led to my wanting to break free out of the box. Yeah, well, that's extraordinary because you were young, right? How old were you when you had this insight? Well, increasingly, I think it was annoying in me, but I think I really understood that I needed to find a new way. Uh, maybe by the age of 12, I was very clearly declaring to my family that I needed to leave. And then they told me I needed to stay till I was 19, then 20, 21. But at 21, I did leave. And I did come to San Francisco and pursued my master's and then my PhD. And Yeah, a whole different life. So um, here's a question for you, doctor, if you could just visualize it. What, could you share for the audience what you think your life would have been like in some granular detail 
including where would you be right now if you'd have stayed in that culture in India? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Uh, but I guess I would be like all my friends who currently live in India and they're not terribly unhappy. It's a beautiful place. I don't like to imagine that there's a, an evil place and a better place. I think I would have been okay, but I don't think I would have lived to my fullest potential. I wouldn't have transformed. I wouldn't have broken free of my own internal fears the way I did. You know, when you leave something very familiar, you're forced to let go of a lot of your attachments. And because you're letting go, you're forced to reconsider, reevaluate. You're not so rigidly uh, attached to the way you were raised. So I love that about leaving. I always tell people, don't run away, but certainly don't stay forever in one place. Explore, because when we explore new dimensions of places or people, we actually explore new dimensions of ourselves, And we deserve to give that to ourselves because there's so much amazing growth and transformation we can go through. And I wouldn't do without an ounce of it, even though some of it was painful or difficult, uh, extremely challenging to adjust to a new culture, being a woman from a different country. But there's, there's nothing to replace the uh, tremendous growth surge that occurs because of such upheaval. Yeah, it's kind of like if you live in a big safe boat, you might never learn how to swim. Yeah, exactly. So, but if you're, if you're tossed into the water, all of a sudden those attachments aren't useful anymore, right? Hanging onto the boat yes. is not useful. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And people are so afraid of transformation, but there's so much beauty in shedding our rigidities, our, you know, simple ways of being conditioned. There's so much that can be received from that. So even though America, in, in contrast, might be the land of freedom and opportunity, um, how would you describe even the Western woman's, their own India that keeps them oppressed, that keeps them from experiencing their own possibilities? Um, each one of us is subjugated by external pressures. And whether you're in India or you live in the most affluent place in the world, there are cultural toxicities that place pressures on us that we simply can't break free from. And the only way out of breaking from the inner cage is to step into our worth, to step into our inner power. And this is something that is very hard to do because it, it, it requires that we reckon with ourselves. It requires that we look at our past emotional experiences and disrupt those patterns. Yeah, and so, you know, at what age does that happen for especially young girls? So what are the oppressive mantras that that happen at the age of two or three or four or five? And it, does it really matter at that age? Could you kind of describe what happens in a child becoming and how that impacts women? It begins early. It begins... Uh, through the mother's breast because of her unconscious legacies. 
it begins uh, very insidiously and the the girl you know doesn't have any choice because there are these standards of how to be a good woman uh standards of how to be an obedient woman and if we don't follow those standards then we are considered unworthy and that's the messaging we get and it's very subtle but it's very profound so really our mothers hold a lot of power to break us free and to help us young girls to uh, develop into our own sovereign liberation but that requires that the mother is herself healed and that she has worked through her own internal subjugation herself so this book a radical awakening speaks to um, women entering their own sovereign power, especially mothers, so that we can raise the next generation free and more powerful. One of the things that I was fascinated to hear you speak about in a previous interview was how um, parents would hire you as a coach to, you know, help them with their adolescent children. And their focus was, okay, we're going to hire you, doctor, to fix our child. Yeah, so people come, people come so to fix the other, to change the other. We always do because we don't, um, we don't believe that the change can occur within ourselves. So this is a constant pattern in all our lives. We're always looking to blame the other or to change the other and fix the other. So the greatest liberation occurs when you take accountability for how you have co-created your own life. And um, until we take responsibility at that very radical level, we will keep giving our power away to others. Yeah, I thought it was hysterical that you said uh, when the parents realized that you were really going to end up coaching them, that a lot of them, they fired you. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So the, the reason that people do that is because they're resisting looking in the mirror to see how they could have contributed, how they could have caused these patterns, how they could have, uh, you know, in their own way, put this baggage from their own childhood onto their children, and they don't want to see that. So um, I'm curious about in your coaching of women and looking at their childhood beliefs their self-image, their self-esteem. What are some of the the labels that women put on themselves that sort of shape them early on and then they end up manifesting for their whole life? Like a label like worthless or what are some of the other labels that you have coached people through? Yeah, every label... Yeah, every label has a belief system that is essentially a lie. So worthless or even the label of good, you know, be good. That's a a true cage right there. It sounds amazing. Everyone wants to be good. Who doesn't want to be good? But when women are told that, that really means be quiet, be compliant, be servile, be be dismissive of one's own truth. Uh, Don't make too much noise. Uh, You know, don't be bratty. You know, so we are very clearly and implicitly repetitively told that we basically need to allow the men in our lives and certainly the white man in this white supremacist culture we live in to lead the way you know so it's not against anybody in particular but it's just the way of this toxic patriarchy it's very clear that there's somebody on top 
and they kind of make the rules of the game and we have to kind of fit in or shut up. And um, these are the labels that we feel we must adhere to if we want to fit in. And this book, A Radical Awakening, teaches women that these labels are lies. We don't have to, we don't have to be angry about it, but we don't have to buy into these systems of beliefs either. And when we shed these systems, we actually begin to liberate ourselves. And do you find that some young girls um, sort of take the opposite of the cage of being good and, and, and become rebels? Uh, yeah, but the, the ones who become rebels are also simply just ping-ponging to the other side because they're just running away and they're fighting. And a rebel or good girl, either way, we are fighting the same standard. And it's the standard of the way we need to be a particular kind of woman that is the oppression here. Because men also have a standard, but we have extra adjectives on that standard. You know, we're supposed to be... Now, especially women are also supposed to be uh, entrepreneurs and achieving and have a career and make money. And I mean, how much should we do? Yeah. You know, there's so much burden on us to do it all. Right. You need to cook all the meals, clean up the kitchen, raise the kids and make an extra 100 or 200 grand a year so we can live where we want to live. And be skinny and be happy all the time. Right. That's right. Don't forget to be happy because nobody yeah. wants to be around miserable and you better be skinny, right? You better be skinny. Yeah. Look like you're <laughs> loving it all. Right. So what do you think about uh, Mahatma Gandhi's, um, or no, the Dalai Lama's quote that the Western woman will save the world? Yeah, I, I, I think what he's talking about is that our current system is so broken. And the reason it's broken is because it's a patriarchal system. And the patriarchy has lost its feminine energy. So it's the feminine energy could come from a man. But that's what I think he is referring to, that yeah. the, the world right now is missing connection. It's missing interdependence. It's missing presence and nurturing that really right now is typically held in the lap of the woman. But again, men can have it too. And women can be toxically patriarchal too. It's yeah. about being masculine uh, in a toxic way or being uh, masculine in a balanced way with the feminine. And it is that balance that is going to save the world. Yeah, curiosity, empathy, love, that's certainly missing at the highest levels of leadership Yes. Globally. Yes. Yes. And that could be the death of us all. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so pretend, Dr. Shafali, that I am um, a woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have the typical low self esteem, which I may have compensated for. Like, I may be very successful and a big hustler and a great parent. But what drove all of that was a fear of not being accepted, not being perfect, because at the core, I just don't feel like I'm enough. What, what's the journey that you would guide me to be on? Uh, now, I started reading your book. I haven't finished it. That's a lifelong study. The Radical Awakening could be a lifelong study. One could read that book. 20 times and get more the 20th time than the 19th. That's deep, that's deep stuff. Not inaccessible, totally inaccessible, but that's, uh, 
that's a work of art there. Um, what would, how would you guide me? How would you, what was, what would be the journey that you would guide me on so that I could shed those limiting self-beliefs that haunt me and make me small and weak and scared and even resentful and angry? How would you guide me to find my bliss? Yes, it's a journey. And this book, A Radical Awakening, is not for entertainment. It's not for your pleasure, really. It's really for those who want to seek to live a more honest, authentic, transparent, raw life, like your podcast is trying to share with the world. And it is ab about spiritual seeking. And those who want to liberate themselves from the shackles of this very greedy, power-based matrix that we live in. So if one is a seeker, this book is very accessible. It'll just resonate with them like it does with you. But if people are resistant and they don't want to truly grow, then this book is not even going to hit home. So the journey of awakening, yes, does take a commitment. It's not taught in schools. It's nothing that our parents really teach us. It's something that as you grow, you have to thirst for and seek with a deliberate intention. And there's a process. Once you begin, it could take six months to a year to begin to really enter another level of elevation. But as you evolve, you can't unsee what you have seen. You can't unknow and you cumulatively begin to uh, integrate these teachings. And then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I am happier. I am treating my body differently. I am making better relationships. I am feeling deep enjoyment in my present moment. And that's what this journey does. It's not an intellectual journey. It's a deeply emotional, profoundly personal one. But when you take it on, you do see an immediate palpable qualitative shift in what you experience out in the world. Yeah, beautiful. So I, I believe that you're a fan of coaching. Um, so if I wanted to embark on this journey, would you recommend that I go on this journey with someone that can ask me the questions I may not be able to ask myself? I think it's imperative to go on this journey with an usher and a guide. I actually train coaches in consciousness and conscious parenting. Uh, and allow them to get the tools to go out into the world to be coaches. So I have lots of coaches if people are looking for a coach, but we absolutely need to have a coach by our side to navigate these new terrains where you are stepping into a new identity that you haven't till now. So this can be a little bit of a scary process, but when you have someone who's walked the path, you can do it with greater courage. And this book, in this book, as you talked about, I talk about my own journey so that I can be the reader's usher and the reader's guide holding their hand down their own path of awakening. Yeah, your vulnerability in there is, is profound. I mean, just a couple of the opening stories about where you found yourself and how that was bottom for you and you use that to pull vault yourself out into transformation. They're beautiful heartfelt stories. Dr. Shivali, do you feel like one of the things that really paralyzes women to seek their own power is the fear of how that will disrupt their marriage? And if so, 
How would you guide them to navigate that? It doesn't always have to disrupt one's family uh, or family of origin, but it could very likely because we've trained people to love us in that old way where we were playing small and not being truthful and willing to let things slide for the sake of the greater harmony. Now we're not so okay with that. Now we want to say what we feel and have an opinion. And that can feel very clangorous to people who are used to our placidity. So they could begin labeling us as, oh, so, you know, who's this bitch or what's gone wrong or what happened to you? And you think you're so full of yourself. I mean, my book has been called narcissistic and selfish by men, right? So no surprise there, because I'm advocating for women to rise to their power. So that's extremely threatening to the status quo. So that is to be expected. And the way I help women to navigate that is to think about, you know, whether they're willing to pay the price for the price of their authenticity. And if they're not, no shame, then they can go back into the shell. And it's okay, it's understandable because they have children or they're not financially liberated. This is okay, as long as they know that they're purposely being inauthentic and not forced to be inauthentic, at least do it out of choice. Yeah, a a lot, I think there, maybe you could speak to this, a lot of the people that follow my podcast, I mean, I wouldn't say the majority by any means, but there are a lot that are, you know, their wives and their mothers, and they also make six and sometimes seven figure incomes as entrepreneurs, they oftentimes make as much or 10 times as much as their husband. <laughs> I, don't, I, I am not surprised. Do you have any advice for how, how, do, they navigate, um, how do they navigate that and, and empower their husband in the face of that kind of income inequality, which is you know, kind of turning the tables. And almost all of those husbands are like, they got it, it took them by surprise all of a sudden their wife is making $50,000 a month and you know they're still making seven working 70 hours a week and, and <laughs> yeah, they, don't hard, do. they don't know what to do they don't what to do with it right you know a liberated man would be okay with it and honor their partners to step into their financial power uh, but a, a threatened man would want to put that woman down And it's not our job necessarily as women to empower the men, but I understand what you mean by that. Uh, Like, hey, honey, don't get, don't feel nervous. I'm not running away. But, But that's sad that we have to babysit our partners, but we do so out of love and that's okay. But it's really about uh, the man feeling secure within himself and understanding that his worth doesn't really depend on how much money he brings in, but how spiritually conscious he is and how awakened he is from inside yeah my my wife kimmy i told her i was interviewing uh you and she was fascinated um one one of her statements that she loves telling me is i'm not your maid yeah yeah many (laughs) women often say i'm not your mom right i'm not your maid i'm not your babysitter yeah we keep saying that because men are used to getting that kind of royal treatment and we women are getting tired of needing to raise them into grown-ups so that they can be free. You know, it should be our right to be free, but we have to kind of coddle all the men so they don't feel so bad because they feel like they'll be left behind. Yeah. I know this maybe deviates a little bit from your 
your what you write about and your expertise, but maybe I'll close with this question. Um, you know, I think it's fascinating that you came to America and, you know, you went through academia and you got the degrees, but then also in a short period of time, in about six years, you've written three best-selling books and you have the accolades of the most influential and powerful people in the world. And you and I have sort of a parallel interesting story, Dr. Shafali, with Oprah. So I was fascinated with your 312 vision that you had with Oprah. And I'm gonna ask people, I'm, I'm gonna ask you to tell that story. And if you could just sort of, you, you said it so beautifully in one of your interviews about you used to hustle and you used to press and you used to, you know, try to force your way into success. And part of your enlightenment is just to learn the grace of visualizing where you want to go, where you want to be, who you want to be around, and then just be in that community and serve that community and find your own graceful way of connecting the dots. Can you tell the Oprah story and the 312 mantra? I love that piece of the story. Um, yeah. For our audience that's looking for how, how can they manifest their vision? Because yeah. you certainly have manifested yours. Thank you. So 100% what you said, that you have a vision for where you want to serve the most and how that makes you feel most alive. And you keep that in the forefront of your focus. And then you keep showing up and showing up and showing up and showing up. So part of the 312 story really was part of my hustling, you know, was not the wisest part of me. It was the craving part of me that so wanted to uh, be on Oprah's Super Soul that I used to just wait for the 312 to just miraculously show up on my phone. But I also did a lot of work to try to get that to happen. I never stopped working and showing up toward my own greatest service. And the 312 was just like, ah, oh, I just wish she would. I just wish she would. But I never stopped at just the apathy of the passive, I wish she would. I kept showing up. And then I kept connecting dots and kept you know, doing the work. And, and then I did meet people who knew her, who knew of her. And then each one took me closer. And then one day I did get a call from an Oprah producer and then I was on Oprah. So, but I don't want people to think that there was a passivity there because sometimes this whole manifestation illusion makes us feel you can just pin it on the bulletin board and keep, you know, having it as a mantra, no. it'll show up. No, it won't. It really will not. I mean, and, and even people who think I'm successful, I mean, the, the daily showing up is so tremendous and exhausting. And there is no accolade out there that really will make you feel like you've ever completed your journey. So after Oprah, I wanted, I kept going. I mean, nothing changed in a huge way. My life was still simple and the same, but sure, did it give, us a, give me a leg up? And sure, of course, but it doesn't come without showing up on a daily basis for your vision. And you have to regenerate yourself. You know, we think in our fantasy, you know, well, if if I got that medal, then I'll be happy and I'll then I'll do it effortlessly. No, every day you have to believe in yourself, believe in your mission, believe in your service, and and show up as an action, as a an effort, as 
as a true commitment. And I don't mean by force. I used to force in the past. I used to hustle. You know, when you're young, you do that. Mm -hmm. Now I allow things to come with grace, with greater flow. I really pay attention to where things and people give me joy and move towards those flows and direction. Uh, but that's the only way to quote unquote manifest. Otherwise we will completely burn out and just go up and down like a seesaw. And you don't want that for yourself. You want to keep regenerating and work from a true place of deep purpose. Yeah, beautiful. You, you might appreciate my Oprah story, uh, Dr. Shafali. So I wrote this book um, in 1995 and it was about the time that Oprah was doing the book club, uh, club. I'm not sure what it was called, but I had the same sort of vision you did. I thought if Oprah would just read my book or at least read the first chapter, I thought she would appreciate it. And I thought she would read the whole book and I actually thought she would love it. And so I sent her a letter in the book and said, hey, I've promoted you. I've you know, promoted your books. I would really love it if you just read the first chapter, if it authentically resonates with you, if you love it and you find yourself reading the whole book, then that's awesome. And maybe you could recommend it and that would be a big break for me. And my hustle, which was, you know, the force was I FedExed Oprah, my book and the letter twice a week for seven and a half years. Wow. And my 312, for those of you that don't know, 312 is the downtown Chicago area code. So if Oprah was calling or Gail King was calling, it'd come from 312. And that was Dr. Shafali's sort of vision. At that time, yes. yes yeah. And my time. vision, Dr. Shafali, was that somebody would go to Oprah after a year or two or three or five and say, what do you want us to do with all these books? <laughs> and she would finally read it. And seven and a half years later, my assistant, I was in California, my, assist, I, my company was in Idaho at the time. She called me and she said, you're never gonna believe who we got a letter from. And I said, who's that? She said, Oprah. It's like your 312 phone call, right? Right. So I said, well, open it up and read it to me. So she opened it up and read it and it said, dear Mr. Brooke, Please cease and desist. Uh, it was from the legal department of Harpo Productions. Right, right, right. So my, right. I wasn't. That, that's that's what you know. You tried so hard, uh, but it was it was from this need. Yeah. And it wasn't uh, you know in a in a connected relationship. Yeah, it right? wasn't. We're just having a relationship with your own need, right. and that's what it's it's a tricky thing because we've been told just go for your dreams. But what I try to teach people, and your story is so clear in that teaching, is that we must go about it in a very connected way. And, yeah. and it should be organic and real and authentic. And if it doesn't come in our way, if she doesn't come in our path, that means it wasn't for the path. Yeah. And we kind of release that, you know? And the dot connection is not me to Oprah, it's me to maybe a hundred other people. Um, and then it yeah. emerges and then it emerges and then it grows. Yeah. It's very organic. And that's where the hustle shifts to flow. Yeah. And every person you meet, you really have an opportunity to serve them, to leave an impression, to contribute, to shape them in some way. And 
you know, I think, you know, one of the things that women and all of us need to get from your work is to the degree that we're absorbed in our own neuroses, our own fear, our own inadequacies, when we're in the presence of another great human being or any other human being, we don't have the capacity to give to them, to serve them, to source them, to be present to them. And so their impression of us doesn't, you know, it's maybe not inspiring. Your yes. work, Dr. Shafali, is um, if the Western woman is going to save the world or femininity is going to save the world, people need to do your work. And I find it to be just really heartfelt and brilliant and deep. And I, I have a sense you're just getting started. So I encourage uh, all of you that are watching and listening, dive into Dr. Shafali's work, read this book. Um, you know, it's, it's extraordinary and read it again and read it again and seek her out, find her interviews and study her. Your life will never be the same. Thank you so much, Dr. Shivali. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Good day, everybody. Thanks for joining us at The Authentic Networker. We'll see you next time.